as you know, we've been working a lot on trade secrets recently, and uh, I think it's a, a very important intellectual property. If nobody knows about IP, then next to nobody, uh, nobody will ever have heard of trade secrets. But I think they're one of the most valuable intellectual property rights for, uh, for businesses today, all businesses today. Hello, and welcome to the Brand Tune podcast, hosted by me, Shireen Smith. IP lawyer, marketer, and author of Brandtuned. The podcast focuses on how to design brands, avoiding commoditization and intersecting them with intellectual property during the creation process. Today, I've invited John Pryor of Exalt IP to discuss trade secrets because the need for confidentiality in some business situations is not generally well understood. I often notice people asking how they can protect their methodologies, unique processes and systems, and the answer depends on what they mean by protect. In many cases, the answer is to consider whether you would want competitors to have access to the information or not. In my book, Brandtuned, I cite the example of Guiltless Gourmet, who had developed a way to bake low-fat tortilla chips, which were endorsed as healthy by the US Center for Science in the Public Interest. The company had evolved in the space of five years into a $23 million business. Then Frito-Lay, one of the largest U.S. snack food companies, became interested in buying them. The two companies had buyout talks, which founded for reasons that are not clear. However, It seems the owner of Guiltless Gourmet went and worked for Frito-Lay as a consultant for a while. I wonder whether he realized how critical it was to the success of his business to keep his recipe secret. I'd go so far as to say that he shouldn't have even entered buyout talks with a competitor like Frito-Lay because Just the smallest crumb of information is often enough for the likes of Frito-Lay to learn how to develop their own low-fat tortilla chips. Frito-Lay was a dangerous competitor due to its well-established distribution network. Indeed, shortly after the buyout talks, Frito-Lay introduced low-fat Tostitos, which were soon available in supermarkets across the states. Straight away, Frito-Lay ate into Guiltless Gourmet's market share so that its revenues dropped to $9 million. Guiltless Gourmet was forced to slim down its workforce from 125 to 10 employees and shut down its factory and outsource production instead. Rather than having talks with Frito-Lay, I'd have suggested Frito-Lay could buy the business along with the recipe without preliminary due diligence checks or go away. 
they shouldn't have had access to anything but publicly available information. Trade secrecy might be the way to protect how a product or service is designed, manufactured, distributed, marketed, and sold, as well as to which groups, through which channels, and at what times. It's about understanding the commercial value of information and then deciding what to do to protect it strategically. So John Pryor is a management consultant and founder of Exalt IP, an intellectual property firm. John, welcome to the Brandtune podcast. Please tell us a bit more about what Exalt IP does and how you came to the decision to set it up. Sure. Uh, the underlying premise, uh, Shireen, is that uh, I don't think enough people know enough about intellectual property. So the shocking uh, stats are that you could go to the leading business schools, stroke any business school in the US and in the UK, for example, mm -hmm. and complete your MBA without having learnt the first iota about intellectual property. In some business schools, there are courses, but you don't have to take them. They're not compulsory. And that, to me, is utterly shocking because intellectual property and intangible assets are taking over the world uh, are everywhere in every business and the main, the main value of most businesses and not to learn all about them and how to manage them just mm -hmm. seems to me that it's a, it's a major fault in the IP education process. So my passion really is not necessarily IP education, but it's to help businesses understand how they can get the most out of their, their intangible assets to, to manage, capture, develop, protect, yeah. monetize, get value from their intellectual property. Yeah, so I noticed you did an MBA. And what did you study there? Did you study brand and anything to do with what you're doing now? Uh, yeah, I, I focused uh, on marketing with the most excellent professor, Peter Doyle. One of those professors who uh, you see once in a lifetime. Who, who can? Uh, well, basically, it was a, it was a it, it was an incredible, incredible marketeer. But he, he was able to lead the whole class, and in some of the classes, there might be a hundred people down an avenue of belief, of belief, of belief, and then just pull the rug from under your feet and bring you all the way back down to the left until he, he worked it out as to what what the actual solution was. And uh, he's he's. It was an engaging lecturer, but of course the subject matter was absolutely fascinating as well. So yes, I loved uh, I loved the marketing side. I did some some human resources, and I also did uh, because I wasn't I wasn't sort of equipped with finance. I did the finance side as well because I yeah. thought it was really important. So brand was a subset of marketing, was it in, in that course? Or yes, and and absolutely. And I I started my. I, I'm a scientist, so I, but I joined Procter & Gamble uh, when I joined, when I started to work straight from university. And uh, they are a brand company, you know, and uh, I think I think what I like about P&G, and I, you can't say this about many companies, is I believe it's been around for 175 years. Yeah. And there are, you can probably count on almost one hand or two hands, you know, the number of companies that have been around for so long. Yeah. And therefore, they must be doing something right. And they are, as you know, they 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 invest a lot uh, of resource, time, money, people into developing uh, brands and uh, and uh, and launching brands. 
And uh, so I learned a lot through PNG, actually whilst I was there, but a lot since, funny enough. Yeah. Uh, I, I left PNG to go and do the MBA, and, and it, it keeps coming back to me. Even today, I'm learning more about what I learned at Procter & Gamble. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they invented brand management, I think. Um, so what was your, you were there six years, weren't you? What, what sort of job were you doing there? Were you in, to, in anything to do with running one of their brands? Primarily, no, primarily more business development. Uh, mm -hmm. They bought a, a pharmaceutical business and uh, our job really was to, to launch it in the United Kingdom and to launch some new products. So, uh, right. yes, yeah, so, I mean, there was a logic to it because they had they mm -hmm. had technology. They, they had at the time, I don't know, hundreds of PhDs researching yeah. well, the, the, the impacts of calcium uh, because of their soap powder franchise and expertise. And, and out of that came a bone bone product, product for bone disease. So it, it's, uh, it, it all had a logic. So, yes, mainly sales, uh, regional managers. They invested so much. Uh, they invest so much in the selection of the people and then so much in the training and, and development of the people. It's unbelievable. Uh, I've never seen anything like it since. I was there six years and I've been, at, been out in the business world since. I've never seen anything like. And of course, what that means is that they tend to have, they don't always promote from within, but they tend to have an incredibly strong resource within the business to, to, grow, to grow the business from. And it seems to work. They have hiccups, as you know, if you look back over the history, they mm. go up, they go down. But, but generally, they've, well, they've been around for 175 years. It's probably enough said, really. Right. Yeah, I, I think IP, when I back in the day when I was at university, it was a tiny little module within property law and it was called Shows yes. in Action. <laughs> um, but I think that was a print society, really, rather than the internet society that we're increasingly living in. So I find that most of society hasn't caught up yet. They're still sort of operating as if. IP is, you know, just an esoteric subject that doesn't really apply to them. So, so what made you actually decide to set up an IP business? Um, I'm curious to know. Uh, well, I've been in the intellectual property business itself as a service provider for 20-odd years. I started in 2001 with a business called CPA Global. And uh, the, reason I, the reason I joined the business, is a philosophical reason I joined the business, is whilst I'd been a scientist, I'd just observed a lot of uh, intellectual property creation that kind of withered on the vine. And I was sort of convinced that there was, that ideas have value. Uh, knowledge has value, negative know-how and positive know-how has value. And there was an opportunity to develop a, an IP trading business at, uh, at CPA Global, uh, which took me about 10 years to do. And then I moved on to a, a larger, uh, actually a patent, a patent, an intellectual property brokerage from 2010 to 20, 2014. What's a so that was right. property <laughs> brokerage? What does an IP brokerage do? Well, it was mainly patents. It was mainly patents. Uh, but oh. we also did music and uh, copyright and so on and so forth as well. And a little bit of brand and a little bit of domain. But it was mainly patents. And that was largely fueled, Shireen, by the litigation environment in the United States at the time. It was a crazy time. You know, Google's patents sold for $3 billion. Nortel's patents sold for $3 billion. It was, it was utterly ludicrous in terms of what was going on at the time. Uh, it's changed a, changed a little bit since. <laughs> so you you were involved in the IP world, and what does Exalt IP actually do for people? I mean, do you register trademarks and patents? How do you operate? Yes, yeah, so it's a good question. So uh, 
generally what I will do, depending on the size of the business, I will put uh, what I, I, I like to talk about an IP business plan because I think IP or any intellectual property advice has to be completely inculcated into the, the business, mm -hmm. business objectives, the one, three, five year plan. So I'd work with the business to put some, do some form of audit and then put, put some form of IP business plan together. And out of that usually flows a series of actions. Some of, it will be, some of that will be IP rate patent and trademark registration, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, might be a, tra a trade secrets policy. There might be, you know, uh, as you said, online, online brand development uh, assistance, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, so a range of different uh, services uh, that they can be, can be supplied. I, as, as you know, we've been working a lot on trade secrets recently, and uh, I think it's a, a very important intellectual property. If nobody knows about IP, then next to nobody, uh, nobody will ever have heard of trade secrets. But I think they're one of the most valuable intellectual property rights for, uh, for businesses today, all businesses today. I must say that in a lot of the entrepreneurial world, you know, there's a lot of comments around, oh, ideas are cheap, you shouldn't be worried about revealing your ideas. And while I agree to, to some extent, I think it's really important for people to understand the commercial value of information. Yeah. You can't just say ideas don't count and go around telling everyone whatever yeah. it is you know. Yeah, I mean, trade secrets yeah. is a prime example of that. Um, yeah. There, there are other intangibles that give business a competitive advantage. You know, they are trade secrets. And perhaps the most famous example of a brand using trade secrecy uh, rather than patents is Coca-Cola, who created a big story around their secret formula. And, you know, I, I don't yeah. know if it's still secret, but, you know, that they've really exploited trade secrets as a way of protecting their business. Can you give us an idea yeah. as to the steps an organization would need to take internally to protect trade secrets? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question actually, because many businesses you speak to, Shireen, will say, yes, we've got trade secrets. Okay, uh, you've got trade secrets. Have you got a trade secrets policy? Uh, or all your contracts, so they reflect that that trade secrets policy. Have you trained all your employees that will touch these trade secrets to understand exactly what they are? Do you have a classification of trade secrets? And when you start to probe, most people don't have. Mm -hmm. They know they've got confidential information, and there's a difference between know-how and confidential information in the eyes of the law and trade secrets, and that's the really important point to get across. Because if you go before, if we have a trade secrets dispute, I walked off with your... Your, uh, your, your, you know, the formula for your, uh, for your Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, mm -hmm. sauce or whatever it is, uh, uh, and and started to compete with you. Uh, the judge will say, say, okay, well, did you? Is there? Can you point to the trade secrets program that John Pryor understood? Where does it say in his contracts that he wasn't able to 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 take take trade secrets? Can you show that this particular secret sauce was classified as a trade secret, and it was of the classification that meant it couldn't be leaked? And if you've got that kind of thing in place, the judge is going to find in your favour. But too many times the judge says, well, it looks like there was some form of secrets there, but I can't, it can't be classed as trade secrets there because these factors were not, not adhered to. The underlying first and foremost thing is, is education, mm. is to get the key people together to take them through first and foremost, of course, sharing his intellectual property and then trade secrets. 
and then to to work with the business to put a program and policy in place to make sure their contracts reflect it and then to start to capture the the trade secrets now of course i i don't want to be party to those secrets but i i can be party to the metadata the descriptions you know the title uh, description of what it is the the date it was discovered who was who's responsible who, who found it all, all those kind of things and i can help collate that into a into a register but the actual description the, the actual document of the trade secret that needs to be done internally because i don't want to know what that is okay well say you're in a kitchen and you've got a recipe like the kentucky fried chicken and uh, all your team have access to it, the cook, etc. So what would you be doing in practice to classify it as a trade? Yeah. So, so it all, I would classify that as a, you know, the UK has, the UK government now just has three forms of classification and the top one is top secret. Uh, and so this would be top secret. You know, this secret source, this Kentucky Fried Chicken secret source would be top secret. And uh, uh, therefore the five employees in the room who were working in the, the the recipe and the, the cookery aspect that we're talking about, they would all have to be signatories to the Sage Trade Secret Program. Their contracts would have to reflect that they cannot take these with them when they leave or share them with any other people. And they would they would must need to know that this particular secret source was a classified, uh, not to be shared trade secret under any any terms, any measures. So it might well be that it, you know, the, 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 as you said. The Coca-Cola recipe is in a safe in Atlanta somewhere. Well, that's probably apocryphal. And it's, it's probably part of their branding and, and their sort of uh, their build around their brand more than anything. But, uh, you know, nowadays in the days of, of hacking, that's coming back to be more important because everybody's getting, everybody's, we're all going to be hacked. Let's face it. Uh, yeah. we're, we're not, I mean, nobody's immune. And if you've got your, and this is, what, this is what led to the whole change in the trade secret legislation. If you've got your trade secrets online somewhere, the bad guys are going to get them, whether you know they've taken them or not. So mm -hmm. I think 10 or 15 years ago, the GC of Rolls-Royce was saying our biggest intellectual property threat to the business is state-sponsored hacking of our secrets, our blueprints to our next, our next Rolls-Royce engine. You know, wow. it's mm -hmm. there on our systems. And if it's hacked and stolen and misappropriated, we probably don't know that's happened. But a lot of competitive advantage has been leaked as a result of that process. So that's what's led in the last seven years to all the governments, all the Western governments, mm -hmm. uh, developing and redeveloping their trade secrets law and legislation to try and protect against that sort of leakage and theft. Well, yeah, I mean, I've heard that in Coca-Cola, only three people at any one time have access to the secret formula. I'm just uh, wondering, really, if you're running a kitchen and you need to get people in, in temporary staff in to help you, because of staff absences, what do you do? You know? Yeah, well, you, you probably just provide them with a finished uh, spice, wouldn't you? The, the sauce, yeah. the spice, and, and here it is now. Use that in the cookery yeah, right. into this process. And you, and you can't take it with you and you can't seek to reverse engineer it and, and so on and so forth. You wouldn't give them the exact ingredients on the, no, the, the cookery so methodology. Can you have to really think through how you run everything in the business, don't you, to, to do that? It's, a, it's a, absolutely. And, and it, and it you know the biggest the biggest threats to there's just been a Cartier Tiffany trade secrets case in the states. So uh, yeah, a Cartier employee was poached across by Tiffany, and the day of her interview, she sent a load of sensitive information to her private Gmail account, mm -hmm. uh, pricing information, market launches, you know, product placements, 
relationships and client details and so on. And so uh, they're suing them. They're, you know, she's now got the job. She told them she was going to somebody who weren't, weren't competitors and she went to a direct competitor and she took all that information with her. And so uh, Cartier is now suing Tiffany uh, over trade secrets. It happens all the time in the pharmaceutical space uh, mm. and in, in, in electronics, particularly in the United States, because it's, uh, it's a more, I guess it's a more developed legislation over there. But it's coming, it's coming all over the world. We've seen yeah. cases in the UK and we've, seen, we've even seen uh trade uh the itc which can stop importation of it was going to be electric evs electric batteries car batteries from some uh from not some from korea uh, over a trade secrets dispute in korea you know the itc ruled they could no longer come into the states whilst ever there was a trade secret dispute and so it was quickly settled of course but it's increasingly powerful increasingly powerful legislation across a range of businesses wow so i'd like to explore what other brands apart from Coca-Cola have used trade secrecy as a way to protect their competitive advantage. Can you give us any examples? There were cases just recently in the press, GSK. Uh, these, these, the, I don't want to really hark on about the Chinese and theft, but it just so happened in this case that a Chinese employee working in America was found to be emailing uh, a whole host of research data to her husband, uh, sister and sister and brother-in-law, who had set up a pharmaceutical company in China on the back of all this this information, and this was unpatented information from GSK's research labs, which they were then pursuing. Uh, they were then proceeding to try and patent in, in China. Oh. Uh, so that was a trade that was a trade secrets case. Uh, I just talked to you about uh, Cartier and, and Tiffany. Uh, the dispute that's going on there. And uh, actually Samsung declared recently that their source code had, their source code for the Samsung Galaxy had been hacked. You know, go back to the electronic side of things. And then if you, if you, the, the Google algorithm, that's that search algorithm that everybody uses, you know, 10 times a day, apparently that's held as a trade secret. Actually, you know, Sergey Brin and, uh, uh, you know, and his, his closest, closest uh, understand it and know how it works but nobody else has ever had access to it right. so uh, source code can be protected in that way oh. as can a whole range of other things it isn't just inventions it can be priceless it can be confidential know-how and negative know-how it, it, it can be algorithms and it can be launch you know if you're about to launch a new brand Shireen you know the details of that launch you don't want it out, out there in the marketplace uh, until the right time because not in the least because people will try and second guess you know, and start to register trademarks and domain names and social media, et cetera, to, 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 to set to, uh, to, to, to blackmail you over, for example. But, uh, yeah. yeah, keeping all that stuff secret is really important. And there was a trade secret. Yeah, when I was researching my book, Brand Tuned, I found that uh, Steve Jobs really operated Apple, uh, you know, with military sort of precision in terms of who had access to the design um, room and, he guarded everything, and often he was the only one who knew what was actually going on. So people uh, only yeah. knew what they needed to know to do their jobs. But he yeah. knew the whole yeah. and that's what you have to and do. It is, and, and Dyson. Uh, I understand. I don't know. You know, this is an apocryphal story, possibly. But Dyson, everybody in a Dyson has black logbooks that they work on and complete, and can they can be never review, removed from the from the building. You know, and they're possibly even locked up after the day's work. Wow. Uh, but that's 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 the way things. Uh, that's the way the research is done there. 
and and quite rightly. Yeah, uh, quite rightly. I imagine the pandemic will have had quite will have been quite challenging in terms of trade secrets because suddenly people had to work at home where they weren't. Oh yes. <laughs> We'll probably see cases emerging down the line from that. Uh, uh, without any doubt whatsoever, because not in the least, IT security is not going to be anywhere near what it was like in the office, is it? Because who's, let's be honest, who's got a password on their home hub? Mm. And I, next to nobody's changed the password. And so they're easy to guess if somebody wants to hack into mm -hmm. uh, and see, see what you're up to, for example. But uh, yeah, and using sort of private Gmail and private personal computers that are being for use for a whole host of other things and by their children for example as well yeah. going on to whatever no whatever websites there's a there's a tremendous uh, it hack risks yeah. there but the majority of trade secrets are are should we say misappropriated by the people and a lot of those are inadvertent a lot of those are not really knowing what we can and can't share and sending that stuff to my home email because i want to work on it over the weekend Mm. or actually talking to somebody in the pub or somebody in a, on a plane who's asking me questions. You know, uh, you know, funnily enough, when I was at P&G, we were paranoid. You know? And it was uh, these things happened all the time. If you left your briefcase in an airport, the chances are, you know, mm. these were day, way before the security risk days, the chances are the Unilever guys would steal it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but that's the same concept with regards to know-how and trade secrets these days. It's all about uh, making sure you, you are protecting it. And uh, a lot of it leaks in partnership. And then you've got the, the, you know, when you've formed a relationship with another company and you're developing a new product and then it falls apart for whatever reason, just just runs yeah. its course. And then the guys who were on it suddenly go, well, that was really useful stuff. Why don't we try that and do this without thinking? You know, mm -hmm. actually, that wasn't ours. That's theirs. And we're not allowed to use it. Uh, and that's that's how a lot of I, trade secret and IP uh, leaks. And I think the consultancies, they be management consultancies will start to face a lot of challenges here because I used to be a management consultant and and what happens there is you work on one company and learn a lot about how they work and then you go six months later you're at somebody else's business yeah probably in a similar field and and with, without of course deliberately taking secrets from one to the other you're taking methodologies and and there's a know-how yeah. and unless you've That's actually decided that you can't yeah yeah. Now, what is expertise and what is know-how and what is trade secrets? These are really important questions. And yeah. if you don't define them, there will be leakage and there will be there will be trade secret cases and, and theft. Yeah. So can you just talk me through what a policy, a trade secret policy would have? I mean, in terms of clauses, what, what would it actually cover? Would it say this is um, what you hear in this context? I don't know. Would everything need to be actually marked as classified for people to know that this is actually confidential? How would it work? Yes, I think that's a crucial part of a trade secrets policy. And you know, it's, it's a lot of what I've just said. It's, it's about education of employees. But then having what, what, what do we might call classification, you know, a red, amber, green yeah. light bulb association with secrets. Red is top secret, cannot be shared outside of the organization might even be kept on dumb, dumb terminals in a safe somewhere, you know and then the amber well we might share that under certain conditions and those conditions are defined as you know strict ndas you know blah 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 blah. and then the the green might be something that we can share publicly under certain conditions and, and, and there are variations within that but having something straightforward and simple 
that everybody can understand does make sense red amber green yeah uh, and then and then just having the the policy in place it's a, a crucial policy showing is is actually when you and i form a partnership with that other business and we go sign away yes nda non-disclosure and, and trade secrets will be respected and they won't be infringed after the event a crucial question to ask at that point as part of our policy to that third party business we're coming in partnership with is can you explain to us your trade secrets policy and the training of your employees about trade secrets because the chances are they don't know and if they don't know then how can they sign up to a, a trade secrets program because the chances are they haven't been trained they don't have a trade secrets policy in-house and therefore their employees won't realize or recognize when they're leaking stuff they shouldn't be leaking so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it can go on forever and you'll probably say you probably think i'm getting far too geeky about this but uh, i think it's really important because know-how and uh, you know those that uh, that research information uh for that next new innovation you don't want it to be out there on the street and you don't want it to be with your competitors more than yeah. more than anything yeah certainly when i worked at reuters everyone was paranoid about tellerate getting access to things <laughs> and you know you wouldn't receive information or when you received it it was on a need to know basis it was but I wonder how much a small business can manage that, I, you know, having procedures like that in place to protect. Content. Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's really important. And I do a lot of work with small businesses. Why? Because before you patent that invention, you keep it secret, right? And yeah. you need to have some programs and processes in place to keep it secret. And increasingly, I, if we look at what's going on in the marketplace, and this is quite nascent, to be honest, mm -hmm. to be fair, uh, Shireen, is that there is now, you can actually uh, get IP-backed lending. Now, it's generally for larger companies, but the, the quality of your intellectual property is being judged and people are saying we can lend money against the quality of that intellectual property, the brand, mm -hmm. the trademarks, you know, the, the presence, the reputation, etc., the digital presence, but also their patents and also their their trade secrets and if if that's the case then having a trade secrets program policy in place is going to serve you in good stead should you reach that juncture in the future because you know as well as i do from a an illegal and administrative perspective to try and do this after the event or try and do this two years hence <laughs> it's so difficult you know what was it what was it we did in that experiment on the the 4th of June, 19, you know, 2019. Yeah. And uh, and what were the results? Oh, they're in this document here. Well, well how does that really, you know? Mm. So uh, <laughs> doing it doing it as ongoing rather than trying to do it after the event is so much easier. Good. Well, just to wrap up a couple of questions. What do you think is the single most important thing a company needs to focus on as far as its brand is concerned? Yeah, that's I, I a really good question. And I, uh, a, a very esoteric answer is reputation. Mm -hmm. You can't, it's a proper intangible asset, assets, isn't it? You know, what is my reputation? What is the reputation of my brand? Mm -hmm. And more than anything, what are the risks to that reputation? And how am I managing those risks? Because, you know, that reputation can be damaged in a heartbeat we've just seen molly may and i don't really know what molly may does on on mm. instagram or whatsapp or what not on instagram but her reputation drops like a stone overnight from one 
throwaway comment, which I'm sure she regretted and was partially misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And then in you know we've and then we've got companies that are, that sort of let them eat cake moments, you know, statements. You know, I, I'm a I'm an open water river swimmer. And so Wessex Water says, well, yes, we do have sewage in the, in the rivers, but, uh, you know, when you go swimming, you just close your mouth. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, yes, we do. We are having a, a fuel and energy crisis and we'll just wrap up a few more jumpers and, and, you know, hug your pet. And these sort of throwaway comments are very damaging to brands and to reputation. That's just what's been in the press in the last couple of weeks. And I, and I think not enough, it's not integrated enough in the business. So, you, you know, is it legal? Is it marketing? Is it sales? Is it is it uh, is it uh, is it senior management? Is it IT from a domain and social media side of things? Is it PR? Is it the external agency? Who's responsible? And the chat. The, the reality is, as you know, is that there's many different uh, people responsible. And whenever that's the case, you're going to get little missteps and mm-hmm. uh, and and damage to to reputation. And I think reputation for a brand is is everything. I mean, you can write into that the sort of emotional connection that we might have with apple for example mm. uh, but it's intrinsically connected to how they serve me and how they how i perceive them and how good i feel about using their products and and what my what my peers think about me using that product and so on so yeah. uh, a difficult one to pin down but i think so important mm. i don't think enough people focus on it either yeah yeah, that reminds me of Ratner's calling his jewels um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and how the value yeah. of his yeah. was just wiped That off. was the end of his business, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, he, was, he, was, he thought and he was amongst peers and a sort of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, rebranding's hard. Rebranding is so hard. Yeah, I know. You effectively vanish overnight, really, if, if you have to change your... I think they're now Samuel and something. But you know who would who would remember that? Um, are there any particular brands you admire, and um, if so, why? As a last question. Well, I I, I, go, I go back to my sort of uh, longevity thing. I'm impressed by businesses that survive, that endure, uh, and PNG is one of those. But uh, another one which I'm really interested in, uh, just just not that I participate, is Lego. I mean, it's been around for, yeah. I think it was 49, 1949. It means play or, you know, playing with bricks or something like that. And, uh, and of course, we as children all played with, with Lego bricks, but it's evolved, it evolved. It went into Star mm. Wars and, and sort of animation and digitization. And it's, it's had a rejuvenation recently. It's, it's yeah. they're incredible adult collector's items. You know, it used, yeah. to be, it used to be trainers that were the big, you know, buy them for a hundred pounds and sell them. You know, three weeks later for two hundred and fifty. Lego sets are now are now their items, so they're collectors' items. It's uh, yeah. and, and great, great for Lego to to navigate those ups and downs. Who would have thought it? A brick that's off patent that everybody seems to want to copy that's so easy to copy, and they've managed to stay one step ahead with ahead with copyright and trademark management, and then you know evolution of the the innovation of the product, and, and of course they went into Lego. Lego World sort of experience mm-hmm. centers at one stage as well. But uh, I just like the way they seem to keep innovating, keeping staying yeah. ahead. So I think that's a great brand, very powerful yeah. brand. Yeah, yeah great example. The, 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 chi- the, Chinese, the Chinese registered 0937 at one, one stage. Of course, if you turn that upside down, it reads Lego. So they, they, really? <laughs> they've had a lot of trouble with, with copy, counterfeits and infringement. But, so well, yeah, I, I like well, that. The Chinese are very hot on IP, even teaching, you know, in primary schools, why is that? Do you think? 
that they're sort of so far ahead in terms of understanding. They, they, they've had a 20, they, yeah, they've had a 25 year vision. The, the government and the, 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 you know, the president has seen this many, many years ago. 2008, I think the premier said the world future of world trade is intellectual property. And they've put everything in place to, to put themselves into the best position. Mm-hmm. So they realized they didn't have that intellectual property back yeah. in the day. They've now done everything they can to, to build that IP. So it was interesting to me, uh, Shireen, mm-hmm. that uh, although Huawei isn't everybody's favorite network provider or inter, uh, you know, back, back, back systems uh, for, for telecoms provider, they generated $1.3 billion of licensing revenue last year, which means that they built up an incredible patent portfolio in the last 20 years, such that now major players have to pay them a healthy a healthy sum of money to use their intellectual property. Wow. And, I, and I suppose that really starts to illustrate that they, that was IBM 20 years ago. It's now Huawei 20 years later. That Things have changed. Things have changed. Yeah. Well, on that note, I'll say thank you very much. <laughs> John, that was excellent. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Shireen. Lovely to speak to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite platform. It really helps to spread the word about it. If you want to appear on the podcast, get in touch directly with me, proposing a topic that you think is relevant to the focus of the podcast. That's the end of series five. After a short break, the podcast will return with series six on the 6th of May, which happens to fall on the second anniversary of its existence. Bye for now.